So we just wrapped up this um, two-ish month-long series on the Emotionally Healthy Church. And the premise there was that we cannot be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature, that our emotional maturity acted kind of like as, as a ceiling for the rest of the aspects of our life, for the physical and the intellectual and the social and the physical, that our emotional health and our emotional well-being actually plays a huge part in who we are. And then as we kind of came to a close in that series, we started asking this question, okay, if this is great, if, if pursuing emotional health in the way of Jesus draws us into the love of the Father, we know that we are squarely situated in his love, um, how, do, how do I do that? <laughs> like, how do I actually live out of this uh, increasing emotional health? And so we started talking about things like silence and solitude and Sabbath of, of in the stillness allowing God to love us and as we are reminded of that of moving toward our neighbor in kind and so this this little series it's called a put on the rhythms of Jesus it extends from that and there's this um, kind of central uh, picture in my mind that or not just in my mind that we'll get to in a moment but I, I heard about this um, a little bit more recently, and it captivated my imagination. And it's this idea of a, a rule of life as an anchor. And, be, and pay attention here, rule is um, singular, not plural. A rule of life is not rules for life. And this idea of a rule of life as an anchor is this idea that as an anchor is to a boat, you don't really feel it until it's keeping you from drifting. So imagine that you are on some sort of maritime vessel and you have set down your anchor because you want to stay in that location. And then there are winds that are pushing you. Well, the anchor is going to secure you. And if there are no winds, then your anchor will still hold fast and yet you will not be moving. But when the winds come, the anchor allows you to stay where you desire. So too, a rule of life, it allows us to stay anchored in the love of God. And so this is something we willfully let down. We say, this is where I want to be. And so to help us unpack this, because a rule of life, um, it, it, it's been like a, a recent learning and a, a thing that's been enriching my own life, but we need some unpacking. So to help get us there, I want to tell you a story about a monk. And this is not just any ordinary monk. This is a monk who's known as the father of monks. Of, of course, you're thinking, oh, Anthony the Great. Yes, of course. Yeah, so this is Anthony the Great. He was born to um, followers of Jesus in the third century. They're peasant farmers in central Egypt. And as the story goes, Anthony is listening to a teaching of Jesus. And in the midst of this teaching, he hears the words of Jesus that says to the rich young ruler, go and sell all your possessions and give them to the poor and come come and follow me. And upon hearing these words, it was like something sunk deep into Anthony's soul. It's such that when his parents passed away and, his, and their wealth transferred to him, he gave away his possessions. So he secured an estate for his younger sister. And then he literally sold his possessions, gave them away to the poor. And he went and lived with a hermit on the edge of town and just lived with him to, to learn what is it to live simply in God's abundance? What is it to think that God is so rich in kindness and mercy and provision that all I need is him in this little cell is what they would call it. And so there in that place, he kind of learns the rhythms of a monk. 
And then in 285, he's said to have gone out into the desert for an extended season of solitude, which is like 20 years, which is, um, that's a long time in the wilderness. And in this work called Sayings of the Desert Fathers, which is a collection of sayings from like 150 desert fathers and I think three desert mothers, which is pretty punk rock to have three desert mothers in that collection, FYI. Um, but in this, in this work called Sayings of the Desert Fathers, he was, quote, attacked, this is Anthony, was attacked by many sinful thoughts. And he said to God, Lord, I want to be saved, but these thoughts do not leave me alone. What shall I do in my affliction? How can I be saved? And it's as though these words are still in the air and Anthony steps out of his cell after this moment of prayer and he has a vision or he sees this, we don't know, but what's recorded is that he sees an angel weaving a basket and he just sits there in the doorway and watches and the angel weaves the basket and then sets the work down and and lifts up the the arms and prays. And then after the prayer is done, doesn't record how long it is, picks up the basket, sits down and works again. And Anthony's just sitting there watching. And as Anthony watched from his doorway, the the angel or the messenger of God turned to Anthony and smiled. And I just loved that little part right there, reading this in the sayings of the Desert Father, that the angel of God turned to Anthony and smiled. And then he said, Anthony, just do this and you will be made whole. The idea here, at least what seems intuitive to Anthony because it seems to play out in the rest of his life, is that he ought to work and pray in his affliction and he would be made whole. This simple rhythm of work and pray. And as his life bears out, this indeed, this rhythm of work and pray, it set a cadence for Anthony's restoration And reflecting further on Anthony the Great, uh, Anglican priest Chris Webb shares this. What Anthony discovered was that our inclination to live by rhythms can be turned to our advantage. It can become a catalyst for profound spiritual growth. And then this little section caught my attention. Every single day we live is like a miniature picture of our whole life. Just think about that for a moment. What did you do yesterday? Every single day is like, we live as like a miniature picture of our whole life. All our priorities are somehow reflected in the way we choose to invest the few hours between each sunrise and sunset. And our survival matters to us, so we make time to eat and drink. If we value those we love or our work or our community, that determines how we invest our time. And as the sum of all of our drives, passions, choices, and instincts, our daily activities reveal our real beliefs and commitments. In other words, what you do tells the story of who you want to be. And so to unpack the significance that what we do tells the story of who we want to be, if you would uh, flip or tap your way on over to Genesis chapter one, starting in verse one. You see, as a community, we have this core conviction uh, that we're not just telling nice stories, but that our, our identity is rooted in the living Christ who we meet and we see the fullest revelation of God in the scriptures. And so we come here for refreshment and to know who God is. And so to unpack the significance of Anthony's story and really the, the, the significance underlying that story, um, Genesis chapter one, verse one, 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. We'll just pause right there. So these two verses, believe it or not, can be like a minefield for Bible nerds and churches alike. It's often the places where those folks, and I would consider myself a card-carrying Bible nerd, and like you go to this passage, these collection of verses, uh, to settle a debate, to to make your mind up about the trajectory of of how the, the world is ordered. And as fascinating as those conversations can be, that's not our goal today. I'm not interested in settling a debate about what we think about Genesis 1, 1 and 2. Uh, What I was curious is, I wonder what it would be like if we treated this passage as it is, namely an ancient text with something to say, like an ancient text with wisdom on offer for a modern world. And so I just want to humbly submit that if we do this, if we receive this text as it's coming to us, that we might see it's asking similar questions that we ask. Um, Who are we? Uh, Where are we? What are are we here for? And so for a moment, as as we kind of let those questions linger, just to be intentional Bible readers, uh, let's just orient ourselves to the landscape of Genesis 1, because this will help us see the story of Anthony the Great in, in greater relief. And so this is a note on the context from uh, Old Testament scholar Bill Brown. He says this, the framers of creation in the Bible inherited a treasure trove of venerable traditions from their cultural neighbors. In other words, um, the people next door told really good stories about the world. Instead of creating, this is now Israel, instead of creating their accounts ex nihilo, this Latin word that means out of nothing, uh, the composers of scripture developed their traditions in dialogue with some of the great religious traditions of the surrounding cultures, particularly those originating from Mesopotamia and Egypt, as well as those of their more immediate Canaanite neighbors. We actually see some of this shared imagery. Look back at at Genesis uh, 1, 2. These these are the words. See what what, what jumps out to you. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep or the abyss. And the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Formless, empty, darkness, deep, abyss, waters. Are those like warm, fuzzy words? No, those words are all a bit chaotic and swirly. They, they don't really evoke a lot of confidence. It's like, okay, this is where the story starts. All right, let's, what's going to happen? Great. He's just setting the tension for the plot. But these are, these words are exactly like they sound. And in, in the Hebrew imagination, and really all of their neighbors, this is the pre-creation state. This is the world before the world. Like their neighbors, Israel assumes that the pre-creation state was this wild and chaotic, swirling, dark mass of water and earth. Therefore, when creation broke out, it was about the ordering of the chaos. And that might sound odd because in contrast, our conception of creation is a bit more about something coming out of nothing. In the biblical imagination and where the Bible is concerned, creation is about bringing order to chaos. Do you see, do you see the difference there? This idea that there is this like 
um, formless and void, this wild and waste, and that God there in the midst brings order out of chaos versus there's nothing and then there's something. Do you see the difference? I'm just going to assume by your silence you're saying, yes, I do see the difference there, Kyle. If not, um, notice where God is in the midst of the chaos. Look again at verse 2, kind of in the latter part of verse 2. Where is God hovering? Over the waters, yes. So God does not banish the chaos. God subdues the chaos with order. And you're like, okay, you're belaboring this point. Here's the payoff. As you go on in Genesis 1 and 2, up to the beginning part of chapter 2, what you're going to see is that what was formless was formed. So here's the days. Day 1, the light contains the darkness. Day two, the waters are separated and ordered. So you have right there, you have the waters above and you have the waters below. Day three, the the dry land and edible plants emerge from the water. What was formless is formed. So now you have these spaces and then what was empty is filled. Day four, you get the hosts are placed in the heavens. This is the sun and the moon and the stars. Day five, creatures fill the skies and the seas. And day six, creatures fill the land with humanity as like the pinnacle of creation. In all of those movements, what was formless and empty is now filled and ordered. It is, it is entirely formed and filled God does not banish the chaos. No, he subdues it with order because creation is about bringing order to the chaos. And and I think that when Anthony saw that angel out of his doorway working and praying, I think what he saw was this reflection of a well-ordered world by God. And in turn, it's this invitation to go and do likewise, an invitation that I'm extending to myself and to our little community. So you may may not have known this about your story or my story or our collective story, but we're not too dissimilar from Anthony, which uh, which is pretty dope because he's the father of monks. See, we all inhabit this place that is given over to chaos. I think the past 16, 17 months bear witness to this, not to mention um, human history. But we inhabit this place that's given over to chaos. This is what the scriptures call sin and death. This redefining of good and evil or good and bad on our own terms. And, and, And what Paul in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, will call the present evil age or this present darkness This is chaos. And what we see, though, is that not all chaos is equal. And and here's, here's what I mean. See, for some of us, we have sown chaos. We have been complicit partners in the sowing of chaos. We have schemed evil, even like, believe it or not. And so our lives, at least in part, maybe sometimes it feels like in full, is the reaping of what we've sowed in that. And for others of us, it's entirely different. It's not the, the evil that we've been complicit or, or participatory in. It's, it's that evil has been done to us. There's been chaos brought to bear on our world through abuse or neglect, or, or, or maybe it's even something different. It's not just that it's, it's a specific person. It's like the systems around us, like systems of injustice that have held us in a place of captivity. 
And so whether it's ourselves or the sin of another or the the place that we live, our culture itself, this is a place of chaos. And yet in the midst of that, we are not fully consumed by it. And all around us, I believe, and I think those scriptures bear witness to us, that order cries out for us. And just think about this on two scales, kind of a macro scale and on a micro scale, how order calls out to us. You see that the summer gives way to the fall, which is like a sad tear right there. One, um, it's coming. My hostas are starting to like die a little bit, which tells a story of fall. But so summer gives way to fall. And then before we know it, fall gives way to winter. And when it feels like we just cannot bear another sub-zero day, something weird happens and it's Iowa. It's like you blink and then it's like a crocus flower, boom, pops up. And it tells you this story that spring is on its way. So it's a macro scale where order is crying out to us. But think about this on a micro scale in our own bodies. Like, and our own bodies are trying to tell us the story of order. If, if we can just put our phones down long enough, then when darkness comes, melatonin will indeed be produced in our bodies. This is amazing. If you're having trouble sleeping, by the way, just um, parent your phone. Put your phone to sleep at seven o'clock. Just be a good parent of your phone, put it to bed and just notice what happens. Your body will start to produce melatonin. You'll get real sleepy because your body too is calling out to this order. So, so what if we listened to order crawling out to us? What do you think would happen? What would we do if we listened? Well, perhaps like Anthony, we would live out the order that we see and we would put on the rhythms of Jesus. And so really, this is where we get to a rule of life because uh, cutting across Christian traditions and time itself, people have thought, the followers of Jesus who desire to intentionally structure their lives to, to cultivate intimacy with God have wondered, how do I do this? If indeed I'm going to listen to the order around me, how might I do this? And that's where this, this rule of life comes, the regula vitae, if you're vibing with some Latin today. I really like how Pete Scazzaro, he describes a rule. A rule of life is simply this, It is a structure or rhythm of our lives that enables us to pay attention to God in everything that we do. A structure or rhythm of our lives that enables us to pay attention to God in everything we do. Um, This is where it's pretty easy to get tripped up. I also think this is where I I felt the most resistance in my own heart toward a rule of life because I'm totally down with God ordering the chaos. You'll read about God like subduing the chaos monsters, the Leviathan, I'm like, that is epic. Yes, order the chaos, Lord Jesus, do it. And I'm even okay with like a cool, like some modern monasticism, like slowing down, like slow down spirituality. That sounds interesting. But the moment I hear rule, I have this reflex where I think rules. And then I feel this, like, I don't know how else to describe it, like this punk rock spirit. It's this rebellious spirit, like you will not tell me what to do. And is that, is that just me, by the way? Or does anybody else feel that like re- repulsion to the word rule. And so I just want us to remember, a rule of life is not a list of rules for life. It's different. That, that, that Latin word regula, it helps us to get our arms around this. This is actually where we get our understanding of a trellis. 
Think of if you've ever been to a vineyard or you've had Welch's grape juice. It's because a trellis was put in place for a vine to attach to and grow up so that it might bear fruit. In my backyard um, right near our little garden, we have a bunch of boxwoods that are kind of like a fence line for us between our neighbor. And um, up behind it, there's this wild vine, this grapevine that is growing like crazy. And the parts that are up and growing on top of our boxwoods that I intend, like I cut back regularly, but they're persistent, um, they're just, they're going wherever they want. And then the parts that are on the ground though, they will succumb to the mower. Oh, believe you me, they will. And yet what would happen, I was just thinking about this last night, what would happen if I found where that vine was growing and set it up, uh, cut it intentionally, pruned it back, perhaps it would bear fruit. Perhaps it would actually give something that would tell a better story than something that's wild. This is what a rule does. It's a place where we can attach ourselves to and grow, but you don't tie too tightly or else the fruit won't come. So you... You go there to build a structure so that what is otherwise chaotic may be brought to order, so that it may bear fruit. In the language of the New Testament, a, a rule is all about us remaining with Jesus. See, this idea of a structure that would help us to abide in the language of Jesus, this is what we're getting at. And, and abiding is not passive. Um, this, is, this is actually something we participate in. We, we remain there. And there's, there's this, this is actually where the like, little title of our series comes from, Put On the Rhythms of Jesus. Uh, 16 times in the New Testament, this word, put on or clothe yourselves, shows up. And this is across the, the New Testament. You see it in the Gospels. You see it in the letters. Uh, but this use in, um, sometimes it literally is like, Herod put on a robe. But other times, it's a means something more. You see about like clothing yourselves or putting on our new creation, or you see this language of put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you might ask, how do I put on the Lord Jesus Christ? <laughs> Is that like go after or before my socks? Where, what, what do I do with that? And so to that how question, I would just submit a rule of life. This is all invitation. I'm not saying this is the way. I'm saying this is a way for us to intentionally put on our new creation. I like how the Apostle Paul says it in Ephesians 4.21. We read this, the, the latter part of 4.21 into 22. It says this, as truth is in Jesus, you were taught to put away your former way of life, your old self, corrupt and deluded by its lusts and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and here's our phrase, and to clothe yourselves, to put on the new self, created according to the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So right here, you have the putting on of the new self coupled with this idea of new creation, that something new is happening, and so we have a response to it. Elsewhere in Colossians 3.12, Paul says it this way. This is beautiful. Therefore, and, it, and by the way, if you are in Christ Jesus, that is you trust, you've given your allegiance to Jesus, these words are for you, so pay attention. Therefore, as God's chosen people, the people on whom God's love has rested from eternity past, as God's chosen people, holy, set apart, and dearly loved, clothe yourselves, put on compassion, 
it, this, is, this is this idea, and you can't not read this and then not share it. It's this idea of guts, have guts of compassion, or really, more specifically, compassion in the Greek, which is the language the New Testament was originally written in, it has to deal with a womb. Now, fellas, we don't have that. We have a prostate. So maybe a sore subject in the room. Keep going. Um, but, but compassion is this word that's distinctly linked to the womb. It's something that we see in those sisters in Christ who are among us. They actually can model how to put on compassion. So in the language that's there, we can glance over it here, but there is something on offer from your neighbor who does not look the same as you, especially according to their gender. So there we, we clothe ourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. In other words, because you are this, because you are secure in God's love as his chosen people, do this. Order your life according to the way of life, the way of Jesus. Now, um, as an aside, that sounds pretty nice, yeah? I think that sounds pretty nice. <laughs> like compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. These are often the vexing points of my life. I, I lack, I have a toddler. So my patience, it's constantly, like I have to... They do a lot of deep breathing. <laughs> this is a lot easier to talk about than it is to do. So that's why we're talking about putting on the rhythms of Jesus. This is not about legalism. This is about training ourselves in righteousness. We could try all we want, or we could train ourselves. We could discipline ourselves in to, to be the type of women and men for whom the natural response of our lives is when we feel vexed, we, we then turn, we say, okay, I am to put this on. I, I know that I have an anchor holding me fast that when I feel like this drifting, I know that I have a place of love and security that's going to hold me, anchor me in. And so because we are this, we do this, we order our lives around the way of Jesus and I, I could be wrong, but I think a rule of life is a beautiful way for us to put on our new life. After all, rule of life, it's simply a rhythm or pattern that enables us to pay attention to God in all of life. And I just think that what we focus on grows, what we give our attention to actually expands our horizons to that very thing. And therefore, our invitation here today is quite simple. It is to put on the rhythms of Jesus, and in turn receive God's ordering power. Just recall the creation account for me because using words like ordering power in church can maybe be weird. So recall the creation account with me. Uh, this is not a rhetorical question. Did God stop ordering the cosmos at the skies and the seas? No. No, he, he was actually not content with the land laying waste. Rather, what was formless was formed. What was empty was filled. The creator God quieted chaos with order. And when sin, seeking to dethrone God by redefining flourishing according to God's like, way and wisdom, when that sin wrought havoc and brought chaos to bear once again on God's good world through our own disordered desires, God could have done anything. And in fact, we actually see this, uh, you know, Noah and the ark. This is like creation 2.0. This is idea of, okay, like it, it's, it's kind of a hot mess down there. So let's just do a little revamp. Noah, you're my guy. And yet when Noah gets off the boat, what does he do? He plants a vineyard, interesting, 
And when he harvests it, he then allows himself to redefine good and bad on his own terms. And we see that this sin sickness is more pervasive than we may have thought. And yet, what do we see after that? We see that God moves towards humanity. He could have done anything. He could have just started over afresh, started off. But no, his love is such that, that he willfully chose to enter the chaos so that it may be ordered again. Really, through this theme, you could say this is the whole of Scripture. God and his faithful pursuit to order the chaos of this world, including me and you. And so I just consider this theme because I think this is so critical because there's no real reason to order your life, to put on the rhythms of Jesus with a rule of life if, if your life doesn't really seem too chaotic. So just consider this. This is the faithful pursuit of God. In short, in creation, God partners with humanity to push the bounds of flourishing out into all of the world. And then Genesis 3 comes on the scene and we rebel. We push off God's definition of flourishing and we define things according to our own definition of flourishing. And then what you see is that God moves even closer still. He moves near. And then, and then you see this moment where in God moving near, he actually chooses a family, the family of Abraham, to be his chosen possession, to, again, push the bounds of flourishing out into all of the world, to order the chaos and show what God's ordered life looks like. And they too sought their own definition. And yet again, what does God do? He moves near. He, he draws a people who are held captive, literally in Egypt. He delivers them and then he gives them this law. He gives them a structure, a regula of mercy and justice to be a contrast community in the world, to show what God's goodness is like. And yet time and time again, those people who had received the, the wisdom of God in his law, they turned aside. They sought after power and prestige. And in their pursuit of power and prestige, they trampled on the oppressed and the marginalized and the poor. And they cast us aside and they were just as evil as their neighbors, the ones they were to be calling to God's order. Chaos had, had reigned in their heart. And then we see that even those people, God moves to them. And there's this moment in the biblical history, in the biblical narrative where you're like, oh, there might be a, something emerging, his character David comes, a man after God's own heart. And you think, oh my gosh, this might be legit. Like well, we might actually, an everlasting kingdom is to be established in his name. This is going to be fantastic. But then one generation goes and another one goes beyond him. And you see that division breaks out. And soon after, there's that same calling after power and prestige and chaos seems to rule again. Like this is the theme consistently through the scriptures. But then we turn the page into the New Testament and the gospels start talking about something new. And if you, ha if you have your Bibles, flip, flip your way on over to Luke chapter three and, and pick up with me in verse 21. What's happened so far in Luke is uh, the Christmas story as we understand it. Baby Jesus, uh, you have uh, John the baptizer there, some beautiful scenes. And then we pick up Luke chapter 3, verse 21. And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. 
And a voice from heaven came, said, you are my son, the beloved with whom I am well pleased. The spirit descends, or you could say it this way, that the spirit hovered over Jesus. Do you remember where God was in creation in Genesis 2? He was hovering over the face of the deep. And now the Holy Spirit hovers over Jesus and Luke 3 transports us back to Genesis 1 and reminds us that the creator God, Yahweh himself, is the one who faithfully pursues order in the face of chaos. And he's not done. No, he's, he's far from it. For now, the ordering presence of God rests on Jesus of Nazareth. And if you think that's where the story ends, you're wrong. And this is, the, this is it's just getting good. Because then Jesus goes about ordering chaos. He gives sight to the blind. He releases those who are held in captivity. He casts out demons. He lifts people who are on the margins up. Women and children are brought to the center Jesus releases order in the face of the chaos of his day. And yet it is this life of devotion to God, the God who orders the chaos that lands him on a cross as the enemy of the state. And at this moment, it looks like sin and death actually have the final word. But what we see And if you didn't know this, this is like just pure fire right here, is that the power of God raises Jesus from the dead, never to taste death again, so that any and all who would trust that Jesus has been vindicated from death would to live just as Jesus lives. This is where we say amen. Yes, because that is what God's ordering power looks like in the midst of our chaos, that it actually can order the chaos of our sins such that we live into life with God. And over the course of the New Testament, you actually see this breaking out, but it's not just like Jesus traveling around doing it. No, instead Jesus says, it's better for me to go away to send you a helper, to send my personal presence. So now the ordering presence of God rests on who? Us, you and me, the church. And many of us, myself included, like we cry out, Lord, I want to be healed. We cry out like Father Anthony. We cry out like the monks of all monks. And we say, Lord, I want to be healed. But when the messenger of God comes along and says, do this, put on the rhythms of Jesus, we like, I don't know, don't listen. We shrug our shoulders And then we go back into the cell of our lives and we cry out again. We languish over the chaos around us and we we cry out and it's like rinse and repeat. How many of you have been living just a rinse and repeat of crying out for God in the midst of anguish and yet not listening when he invites you to respond? Like, often it's said that preachers preach the sermons they need to hear. This is for me. See, Jesus is interesting, interested in, in ordering our chaos right now. And I can't, I can't pretend to know what like, the chaos you feel. It may very well be your body is out of whack and you are like, Jesus, help me. How do I remain with you? 
how do I, how do I put on this new creation that you've told me about? How can, I, how can I hope against hope that what you said, that resurrection life is indeed true? How do I do that? And again, I just humbly submit that a rule of life is a way to do that. And so in the coming weeks, we're actually going to explore a bit more of this about how to do this. Um, I'm really grateful a a, a few folks are going to walk us through what what does it look like to order our life around the Word of God? What does it look like to order our life around worshiping God in all of life? But in the meantime, I just want to leave you with a place to start to explore this. So if you're a note taker, this is your time. If you're taking notes, you have so much freedom right now. Okay, here we go. So this is, this is just some, some categories in light of this, how we might put on the rhythms of Jesus. First, uh, start small. Start where you are, um, not where you feel you should be. I shared this with Jessica last night, and she, she literally laughed at me <laughs> because what she knows is that I'm a bit of an idealist. And then I'll be like, I want this. I'm going to have the most epic rule of life. 5.30, uh, fixed hour prayer. Then I'm just going to abide in the living presence for 45 minutes. It's going to be, she's like, no, why don't you just try and get up at, at the same time every day? <laughs> Start where you are, not where you feel you should be. Because unrealistic goals, uh, they just leave us discouraged and disillusioned. And then uh, keep, keep these things doable, Keep them enjoyable because those enjoyable goals, they actually move us forward in our spiritual formation. And so if you don't like a rule of life, don't do it. There you go. And also probably do it if you don't like it. I don't know. Um, So the next thing, be specific. Look for practices that are practical. So rhythms that are practical and that you can actually do, like do them with your body, not vague ideological things. Like um, I want to practice the Sabbath from Friday at sundown till Saturday at sundown. Not, I think I want to be more relaxed. Uh, next, consider your temperament. This is introverted, extroverted. Just know how you're wired up. If, if you are tired being around people, get a lot of time to like be alone. If if you like love being around people, do the opposite, or rather, just be with people. So, uh, next thing, consider your season of life. This this comes. This little nugget of wisdom comes from John Mark Comer. Um, if you have little kids, uh, start very very small. Go really easy on yourself. Remember, children can be your monastic bells uh, to remind you that your time is not your own and shape you into a person of love. And likewise, if you are single, like. Just consider the time that you have and live into its fullness. Like, why death scroll when you can actually do something productive? Like, go on a walk and wonder at the nature around you. And uh, second to last, uh, keep a healthy balance of upstream and downstream practices or rhythms. Uh, Our staff this past spring went through a work by this author named A.J. Sherrill on spiritual formation, and it all moves towards the end of of building a rule of life. And he uses this language of upstream and downstream practices or rhythms, which are what they sound like. Upstream are things that are hard. And so for upstream practices, Choose one that is maybe substantive. Generally, these will be the things that help form us more. And downstream practices are the opposite, the things that fit into our temperament, our season of life. Choose a bunch of those so that this is, it's actually delightful to follow Jesus. And uh, just as a good rule about your rule, it should feel like freedom, not slavery. 
if it starts to feel like slavery, because maybe you're a bit of an idealist or you identify as a one on the Enneagram and you're like, unless it's perfect, I won't do it. Like maybe the prayer and the prayer I'll be praying for you is freedom to try it. And remember that a good rule, it is a living document. Like when you write it, you don't laminate it. <laughs> it's living with you because things change and you try it on. You're like, ah, this is awkward. These pants are way too tight. I'm going to take these puppies off. And it's just, it's meant to bring order, not chaos. This is the thing that's meant to anchor us in the love of God. So when the wind of life starts to push us, we are actually held fast. That's where it's to bring us. And I actually want us to remember that reality, that, that we, are, we are a community who are held fast. We are those who are dearly loved. We are chosen. We are holy. And so let us remember this. If you would, if you would stand with me, we're, we're going to remember this Jesus. Um, and we're going to respond and worship through song. We're going to be sent out. We're going to... But before we do that, this is in really, in essence, this is kind of the climax of our gathering. And if, if this feels unfamiliar, you know, we have some communion that's available in the back. And what we say is just that this is a space where we can re remember that the substance of who God is became human in Jesus. And that Jesus gave himself away. His body was broken, torn asunder. His blood was spilled. This, this new covenant of forgiveness in Jesus's name. And so week after week, just as we discipline ourselves to come and remember that, that he is good, this is how we do it. It's not just a nice thought. It's a thing that we practice with our body. So I just invite you now, take the bread. Remember Jesus's body broken for you. And likewise, take the juice, take the cup. And remember that this is his blood poured out for you. That you would come to him and remember his goodness. And so church, let us continue to worship. I just want to, I, I want to invite you into this space that this is, this is a place that we actually get to um, remember God's goodness to us. And so as you are, as you're waiting on the Lord in this time, be willing to listen and respond. Perhaps that is a simple response of, of singing louder or just singing at all. Or perhaps it's a response of like, of responding with your body, of allowing your knees to touch the floor. Or perhaps it's for your hands to rise up just to recognize who God is and how he is for you. So in this next song, let us listen and wait on the Lord.